Welcome to WellMed Radio, a service of WellMed Medical Management. WellMed Radio will educate you about health and wellness for seniors and their families throughout Bear County and Central Texas. During the next hour, your hosts Ron Aaron and nurse practitioner Cora Zhuk will share information that will help you improve your health and wellness. And now, here's Ron Aaron and Cora Zhuk. Well, thank you very much, and welcome to WellMed Radio. I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Cora Juke, is with us, a nurse practitioner, graduate of Texas Tech University, earned her undergraduate degree there and her master's as a nurse practitioner, and currently is completing a doctorate program at UT Health in Houston and is looking down the road to get into administration. So uh, it's good to see you. It's great to be here. We have a, a, a guest on who is uh, not only well-connected to San Antonio, but is involved in a very important study on prostate cancer and medication. Dr. Ian Thompson, president of Krista Santa Rosa Hospital Medical Center, vice president there of oncology, earned his medical degree from Tulane University School of Medicine, where one of our colleagues at WellMed uh, Medical Management, uh, Dr. Robin Eikoff, earned her uh, medical degree as well. He completed his residency in urology at San Antonio Uniform Services Health Education Consortium and Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. He's board certified by the American Board of Urology. And uh, Dr. Thompson, thanks for coming on WellMed Radio. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, Delighted to be with you. I I read in the uh, San Antonio Express News uh, the other day about uh, some of the results from a study that you've been involved in uh, on a drug that's been around for a while and at one point was considered to be a cause of prostate cancer and now has a better reputation. What is so, that all about? So the study, oh, so the study began in, in uh, 1993, and it occurred at a time in the United States when PSA testing uh, really took off. And uh, we saw a dramatic increase, about a twofold increase in the rate of prostate cancer in the United States. And it, um, uh, it was very much of a concern that uh, at that point in time, maybe one man in five or one man in four would be diagnosed with prostate cancer. It ultimately ended up being about one man in seven. But concurrently, uh, this medication called finasteride uh, was approved by the Food and Drug Administration for the treatment of prostate enlargement. And uh, the drug's kind of an interesting medication. It's one of the first targeted agents for uh, prostate disease. And uh, what it does is it blocks a hormone that's only located, uh, predominantly located in the prostate and in the scalp. And so uh, it leads to shrinking of the prostate, and it recapitulates uh, a condition that is found in some uh, boys that are born without this enzyme. And these, these little boys, when they grow up, they don't develop prostate enlargement nor prostate cancer. And so the National Cancer Institute recognized that there was an opportunity to begin a study to determine if prostate cancer can be prevented with this medication. And that's, that's what we started, um, actually began the design of it in 1992, and the study began in 1993. Now talk to me for a moment, if you will, Dr. Thompson, about uh, the PSA test, because it's my understanding it gives false positives. Yes, that's correct. And that's also true of all medical tests, all blood tests and so forth. So the PSA test is, um, uh, it's, a, it's a test that measures a protein in the blood that's made by prostate cells, and uh, fundamentally, the higher the PSA, the higher the risk is of prostate cancer. And from studies that came from our study, um, we know that also the higher the PSA test, the higher the risk there is of the aggressive form of, form of prostate cancer. So while it does have false negatives, so you can have prostate cancer with lower levels of PSA, and they can also be false positives, so you can be free of prostate cancer at higher levels of PSA. It is one of the best-performing diagnostic tests in our armamentarium for cancer diagnosis, and I will tell you, having served as the, um, the chair of the steering committee of the Early Detection Research Network of the National Cancer Institute, that's the program that helps develop and, and discover new detection tests for cancer, um, um, many other um, uh, physicians in other areas of cancer wish that they had a PSA test for colon cancer and for breast cancer and lung cancer and so forth. So while it's imperfect, just like cholesterol and other tests, um, it's a pretty good test in terms of determining a man's risk of prostate cancer. 
And I'll tell you this, as a, as a primary care provider, it is it is an, a lot easier sell to a patient when you're looking and you're talking about screening for cancers. It's an, it's an easier sell to say, hey, listen, there is a blood test that I can perform to, to look at your risk factors or look at your risk of developing prostate cancer or your potential for even having prostate cancer that we can do. It's an easier sell than the typical digital rectal exam that a lot of men say, I'm going to avoid going to the doctor or avoid going to my primary care physician because I am afraid of this test. When they hear that it's done in the blood, they say, hey, listen, that's a whole lot easier for me to do. I'm getting blood work anyway. I'm going to get my cholesterol drawn and I'm going to have my sugars checked. So why not check this? I, you know, we, we do it every year for patients um, since we're getting blood anyway. Yes, um, you're exactly right. Um, the rectal exam, uh, interestingly, is is important, but it's not as important as the PSA. And when PSA came along, in fact, we we did studies um, back before PSA was available, and a, a couple of thousand patients in a rectal exam only um, test, and we found that just like breast self-examination, while it is important, um, uh, by the time you detect prostate cancers with a rectal examination, most of them are advanced. So the PSA test really revolutionized the detection of, of, of prostate cancer. And, um, and we've seen that since the PSA test came along that the rate of prostate cancer death in the United States has fallen by more than 50%. So it's, it's really saved lives. Now, if you've just joined us, you're listening to WellMed Radio on 930 AM, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Cora Juke, a nurse practitioner. And we're talking on our WellMed Radio hotline with Dr. Ian Thompson, he is the president of Christus Santa Rosa Hospital Medical Center and has been working as an oncologist and a urologist at some of the issues involved in prostate cancer. And, and Dr., uh, as, again, uh, for many of our listeners who are older, uh, are we at a point where if you're in your 80s or 90s and you get a, a concerning PSA result, you just forget it because you're going to die of something else before the prostate cancer well, gets you? Yeah, that's a... Um, that's a complicated question. So if you ask for um, the population benefit, uh, the majority of the population benefit of PSA testing will occur for men in their 50s, 60s, and maybe early 70s. Much less of a benefit in men in their, in their late 70s, um, 80s, and certainly in their 90s. But nonetheless, um, a PSA test, if it's interpreted appropriately, can be very helpful in a man in their 80s or 90s. For example, um, a man who presents, who happens to have a PSA test drawn, and it's a very high level of PSA, uh, could indicate the presence of prostate cancer that is metastatic. And what, what does that mean? Metastatic means it's spread, and prostate cancer oftentimes spreads to the bone. When it spreads to the bone, it can weaken the bone. It can uh, lead to um, uh, fractures, like hip fractures and and uh, femur fractures and, uh, and compression fractures of the spine that can lead to uh, uh, spinal cord problems. So if you happen to, it's not, uh, we would not generally recommend screening for prostate cancer in men who are older with shorter life expectancy. If you happen to have a PSA test that's very high, and I might say a PSA that's, say, more than 15 or 20, that can then um, uh, enable a physician to identify a prostate cancer that has developed in an older man and then institute treatments that will prevent the complications of the disease. Um, and the complications of the disease, uh, um, a spinal cord compression uh, or a femur fracture uh, can be catastrophic in an, in an older person or actually any person that can be ca catastrophic. So um, while we generally do not recommend widespread screening, of men in their late 70s, 80s, and 90s, um, uh, if you have a PSA test that's, that's um, concerning, uh, that person should be seen by a urologist or a urologic oncologist um, to rule out the possibility of an impending complication from prostate cancer that can be prevented. 
I agree, and I think you know as we're as we're start, starting to see patients live longer, and and quality of life is definitely something that we look at. You know, I have a I have a gentleman a patient who just turned ninety seven, and he is an avid runner. He completed a marathon about two months ago, and so he is not one that I ever say fits into the age category that I would cut something off or cut testing off because he is one of those in his late seventies. You know, we projected his his physician at that time would say, "Look, you're going to live to in your hundreds. I know you are, unless an accident occurs." So he was one that definitely quality of life. He was one that I would screen because he was one that that would want to do something about it should he have a diagnosis and talking about falls and and fractures you know I think about quality of life and bone cancer as my grandfather had bone cancer it was very painful so it would be something that the patient may want to know to be able to make an educated decision or a shared decision making on what we should do about it so again I'm with you I, I don't think that so many of our screening tests we cut off at, at ages but I think we need to look at each patient individually and say what is the projection that we see as far as their life and what kind of quality of life are we looking at as well? Right. However, in older men, the primary benefit of of TSA and those kinds of testing will be in to avoid morbidity from the disease. Um, The likelihood that a man who is elderly will benefit from primary treatment like radiation or surgery is incredibly low and the morbidity of those two treatments Will oftentimes overweigh any benefits. So right. it's, it's really we, what we. I think both of us are saying is that um, is that it all needs to be individualized based on not just the patient's age, but their health and life expectancy. Sure, sure. Now, for the individual who may be listening, uh, maybe a, a man or a woman, because women are the ones who encourage their significant others to see the doctor. Uh, for someone who's 50, 60, 70, 80, what do you recommend for prostate health? Uh, okay. Um, um, so for prostate health, I presume uh, that would be um, um, treating symptoms and preventing complications. So the two primary problems that occur related to the prostate are urinary obstructive symptoms due to prostate enlargement, and the second one is prostate cancer. For obstructive urinary symptoms, um, uh, if a man uh, is having difficulty emptying his bladder and having frequency and other complications associated with that that affect his quality of life, there are a host of medications that can help with that. There's two general types. One are called alpha blockers that relax the smooth muscle in the prostate and help uh, the bladder empty better. And the other one um, is uh, our a class of agents called 5-alpha reductase inhibitors, of which finasteride, which is the subject of this study is used for. And um, depending upon the size of the prostate and other uh, uh, factors, uh, either one of those medications can be used separately or they can be used together to improve urinary symptoms. So step one would be those medications. And let me just pause just for a moment and say, uh, when we think prostate health, oftentimes people talk about diet and so forth. Unfortunately, all studies to date have shown that dietary or use of supplements have either been ineffective or have actually increased the risk of prostate problems. So while we'd like to think that <clears throat> diet can can help um, risk of, of prostate enlargement or prostate cancer, it actually is not true. Uh, at least to date, all the studies of, of, of that, for example, I helped run a, an, a large national study of about 34,000 men um, that were uh, were given the two most promising supplements, um, uh, either vitamin E or selenium, um, and it was four groups of men. Uh, one group got both, one group got selenium, one group got vitamin E, one group got neither. Uh, and this, this study we closed early because of overwhelming evidence that vitamin E caused prostate cancer. In fact, vitamin E was associated with a 17% increased risk of prostate cancer. Wow. Um, uh, uh, so, and, and so, and multiple studies ever since have shown that there is no benefit at all for a healthy person to take vitamin E. In fact, there's a harm. So one take-home message for your listeners should be that if you're a man and if you are taking a vitamin e, a supplement with vitamin E in it, you should change your supplement and get rid of the vitamin E. Absolutely no benefit. 
And that's been shown with regards to vitamin E for um, heart disease, and colonic polyps, and, and so forth. So there's no benefit. Um, and a second study recently called the MEAL, M-E-A-L study, the Men Eating and Living Study from the National Cancer Institute. We were hoping that a, a dietary change, so increasing cruciferous vegetables and so forth, would uh, reduce the risk of prostate cancer um, and prostate cancer progression and found absolutely no benefit at, at all. Oh, wow. So, so eating like a rabbit won't help. Stay with me just a minute. We're going to come right back to you, Dr. Ian Thompson. I don't need to eat all that broccoli I eat every day. I'm Ron Aaron, oh, along with our co-host, <laughs> Cora Chuk, and Dr. Ian Thompson is with us on our WellMed Radio hotline. Carol Zornio, we talk a lot about caregiving on Caregiver SOS on air, but what is it? Caregiving is caring for a family member, a friend, a loved one, someone who's in your life that needs help with bathing, dressing, buying groceries, medical appointments. If you do any of those things, you're a caregiver. And how can this program help? Caregiver SOS On Air has information from people who have been caregivers, who work with caregivers. It can be book authors, scientists, doctors, the latest information on caregiving right here on KLUP. And one of the things we learn from so many folks is they fail to ask for help when they need it. Well, caregivers do need help. We don't like to ask for help, but we need it. And you'll get tips on how to ask for help and how to have a better life as a family caregiver. Plus, there's a great website you can go to, caregiversos.org. Caregiver SOS on air, Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m., The Answer. Although the enrollment period has ended, there are some exceptions into January if you are looking to change a health care plan. Talk to your agent and see if that is something that is in your best interests. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host Cora Juke on WellMed Radio. You hear us at 9.30 a.m. The Answer, and you can access our podcasts as well. And we're talking with Dr. Ian Thompson on our WellMed Radio hotline, president of Christus Santa Rosa Hospital Medical Center. He's vice president of oncology there, and we're talking about a research study that he has been involved in for some time now, uh, looking at ways to treat and diagnose uh, not only prostate cancer, but to understand what's going on and what follow-up treatment may be needed. So I want to come back to something uh, that, that you had said, Dr. Thompson, because uh, there are all kinds of, uh, and, and maybe they're uh, just these theories that don't pay out, uh, but to battle Alzheimer's, eat a lot of broccoli. To battle prostate cancer, eat a lot of broccoli. To battle everything, eat a lot of broccoli. And, and what you're saying is, I can cut back on my broccoli. Well, um, I'm just saying that in a, um, we, we, we know from a randomized trial specifically looking at the prostate that increasing cruciferous vegetables by itself <laughs> does, not, uh, does not reduce the risk of prostate cancer progression. Now, Ron, in no way... It doesn't necessarily mean that you shouldn't eat broccoli um, <laughs> in the sense that <laughs> one of the greatest challenges that we face is the obesity epidemic. Exactly. So diet that is... That is a rich in cruciferous vegetables oftentimes has less processed sugars and less salt and may lead to a reduction in overall health. But the flip so so it doesn't mean that eating broccoli is necessarily bad. Uh, and generally a healthier diet generally is associated with a lower risk of, of, of plethora of diseases. But the one take-home message is that if you are at risk of prostate cancer and your primary goal is to reduce your risk of prostate cancer or to, um, to manage your prostate cancer, uh, a diet to do so probably won't get you there. Now, is there a genetic link to prostate cancer? Yes, but it's very complex. In fact, our, our genetics laboratories have been involved in this for 20, 30 years, and um, there is no uh, BRCA1, BRCA2-like gene or APC gene. That's, that's so BRCA1, BRCA2 is for breast cancer, APC for, 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 for colon cancer. There's not a single gene that increases a man's risk of prostate cancer. And in fact, most prostate cancers occur in men who have no family history. Um, and a family history of prostate cancer marginally increases a man's risk of prostate cancer. Most men who have bad prostate cancers or die of prostate cancer have no family history. So genetics plays a role, but it's multiple genes, of each one of which having a small impact that add together 
in combination with perhaps some environmental influences that may play a role. Now, I do love the fact that you, you mentioned about the diet because I, I have several patients in practice who who will come in, they're, they're strong vegan um advocates and they will tell me, you know, my risk factors are very low for cardiac disease and for this disease and that disease because of my diet. And and we talk about things like that. We talk about, you know, there are low risk factors for diabetes and yes, for cardiac disease. But but I love that you said, you know, there are other things that you need to worry about and other screening tests that need to be done. Can you talk to us though also about sexual health related to the prostate and the benefits or, you know, you know, because some of our patients are very sexually active and some that are not. And so what the, if there's any risk factors that are involved there? It's actually a very short answer to that. To, our, to my knowledge, to our knowledge, based on science, there is um, no evidence that sexual activity plays a role with relationships to its risk of uh, prostate enlargement or prostate cancer. So I, I love that you said that because we have a lot of patients who have misconceptions about it. And, really? And yes, there are a lot of misconceptions about it. Um, in fact, just two weeks ago, I was talking with a patient and his wife, they were both in there. These are my vegan patients. And, and they're the ones that I, I talk about screenings with. And they just are very opposed to screening tests. And, and we talk about these things. And I try to give them the benefits versus the risks and 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 try to talk to them about evidence-based science. And one of the things that she had actually said to me was, well, we're very sexually active, so really and truly his risk factors for prostate cancer are low. And I tried to explain to her that that is a myth, but now we've heard it right from the person who is conducting evidence, the evidence-based, you know, uh, research. So, you know, I'm going to refer my patient this way as well to listen to this show uh, because there's a lot of misconception out there. Right. uh, Unrelated. We spent a lot of time looking at that as well, looking for infectious disease and so forth associated with that have been unable to uh, find a link. Mm-hmm. One, one of the things I, I like about the opportunity to talk with you is uh, you're not only an administrator as uh, president of Christa Santa Rosa Medical Health, uh, you're also hands-on research. And take care of patients, yeah. Right, and see you know, patients. The, and see patients and operate and so forth. You know, one of the things, if we could just spend just a couple of minutes on that I, is really the, the most cutting-edge discovery that we published in the Lingua Journal um, uh, last week <clears throat> is the impact of this drug finasteride on uh, a man's risk of developing prostate cancer because one man in seven will be diagnosed with prostate cancer and and most men will not die of it but once you're diagnosed uh, the treatments uh, can have some side effects sexual function urinary function and uh, what we found in a study of 18,882 men that we began in 1993 and published in 2003 in New England Journal, uh, what we found was that uh, finasteride, which is the drug that's used for treatment of enlargement of the prostate, reduced the risk of prostate cancer by about 25%, which is enormous. Today, it's it's about 40,000 men per year that would not be diagnosed with this medication. It's generic that costs pennies a day. Um, but the complication at that time was we found that there were more men who were taking the medication with high-risk prostate cancer. And that was the publication in 2003. Over the next um, six or seven years, uh, studies that we conducted within that trial uh, showed us that what the drug also did by shrinking the prostate and changing the PSA is it made the PSA test, the rectal exam, and prostate biopsy more accurate. So the men who were taking the medication, it actually helped us find the aggressive prostate cancer. And the, the final study in this entire litany of hundreds of publications, was last Wednesday. And uh, what we found by linking all of the men in the trial with what's called the National Death Index and looking to see what they died of, we found that not only did, did, uh, was there no difference, was there no significant increase in the risk of uh, prostate cancer death taking the medication, but there was a 25% reduction. It was not statistically significant because there were, and these men that were getting regular checkups, there were uh, quite a, a, a small number of prostate cancer deaths. So we now know that this medication is, um, um, by all by all uh, means, it appears to be pretty safe and quite effective in reducing a man's risk of prostate cancer. Well, so should, unlike it, should every guy be on it? Other, 
Well, no, it's not for everybody. So there are side effects. About um, 1% or 2% of men can get some breast enlargement or some breast tenderness because it does make testosterone go up by about 10%. And the, uh, the other side effect is that some men will notice reduced libido, um, decreased sex drive, uh, or may have some trouble with the erections. In most men, if you stop the medication, that, um, that side effect will go away. But um, um, uh, it's, it's for a man who's, who's concerned about his risk. For example, his dad had prostate cancer, brother had prostate cancer, or an African-American man who has about double the risk of prostate cancer. A man who talks to his doctor and says, you know, I'd like to reduce my risk. This is the only medication that reduces the risk, um, and it's um, only only approach that we are aware of that reduces a man's risk of prostate cancer by about 25%. It does have some other positive side effects in that it improves urination. It cuts in half a man's risk of having complications from prostate enlargement. And the other side effect that um, when we first published this, uh, um, it was on Jay Leno's monologue uh, that he made fun at, is that this medication is also the same medication as Propecia. Uh, that's the same finasteride, and it um, does... Um, increase uh, hair growth. So it's uh, it's one of the approved treatments for male pattern baldness. So uh, um, a man today who is concerned about his prostate cancer risk, who talks to his physician and says, is there a medication or is there an approach to reduce my, my risk? We can now say unequivocally, yes. Um, and it's a, it's a pretty inexpensive approach um, to prostate cancer from a public health standpoint, which is a very expensive disease for our nation to treat. And if you can eliminate a quarter of the cases, it would be a tremendous cost savings as well. And it helps grow hair. Yeah. uh, Kind of interestingly, most of the guys that I see who are being treated um, um, oftentimes for prostate enlargement, most of the time the hair loss has already been established and a little late. But Ah. (laughs) um, it's not uncommon that I see folks that we start on finasteride and they say, oh, by the way, you know that ball pot? A bald spot filled in or had a little more growth. Yeah, I have a bald scalp. <laughs> yeah, you piqued interest <laughs> of and, and Ron here. <laughs> exactly. Now, the numbers that uh, I saw in the uh, Express News article are, are pretty frightening. 31,000 men will die from prostate cancer in 2019. That's this year. That's a lot of people. Yes. And, and, and that's extremely important, but it's also important to think about the 160, 170,000 men per year that are diagnosed. Um, they are labeled as cancer <clears throat> survivors. They get treated with surgery and radiation. They have sexual side effects, urinary side effects, other complications, um, and they have follow-up. Every six months or every year, they go to their doctor, get their PSA checked, and the anxiety that's associated with that. And eliminating a quarter of those cases each year in the United States is no, no small feat, no small advance. 40,000 guys without having to have that conversation with their physician. What am I going to do about my cancer? And then what am I going to do about my side effects of my cancer? Um, that's a big deal, and it's, a, it's an enormous advance for our nation, and it's a real testimonial to... San Antonio, where this study, um, uh, the 10% of the subjects in the study were, were from San Antonio. The leadership of the study was from San Antonio. And it's a testimonial to our nation's investment in the clinical trials mechanism, SWOGS, uh, um, what used to be called Southwest Oncology Group, the Clinical Trials Network of the National Cancer Institute, and our national investment through the National Cancer Institute in clinical trials for cancer prevention. Now, what got you? I'm sorry. Go ahead. This is a home run for our nation. What got you interested in finasteride? Well, um, Dr. Charles Coltman, who was the um, the chair of Southwest Oncology Group, as it was called at the time, it's now called SWOG, which is the it's a large network of institutions, academic and community institutions across the United States that enroll patients on clinical trials. Dr. Coltman and I were asked to go to the National Cancer Institute in 1992, I believe it was, to help design the trial. <clears throat> and uh, I was asked to be the principal investigator and but worked with hundreds of hundreds of investigators around the nation and, and many hundreds of scientists and statisticians and pathologists and so forth around the nation uh, for this trial for the last uh, 25 years or so. 
Wow. Longitudinal studies like this uh, are, are very valuable if you can track people for that length of time. Uh, are there other drugs and studies that you're involved in? Oh, yes, we have. Um, so SWOG um, uh, is, is involved in dozens and dozens of, of, of pivotal clinical trials uh, being conducted in not just in prostate but breast, lung, myeloma, um, all, the, all the malignancies uh, currently. So there are a number of those trials that are currently going on, um, many of which have reported out. So the drug docetaxel, which is uh, now the uh, probably the most effective agent for, for prostate cancer, for advanced prostate cancer, um, that was uh, approved by the Food and Drug Administration based on uh, two clinical trials, one of which was run by SWOG. And we have a number of other trials that are currently ongoing and and urologic cancers, and kidney cancer, and in prostate cancer, and in bladder cancer, some really innovative clinical trials um, for, for, for these trials. We also have other, other studies that are ongoing. And another study that its inception was in San Antonio was a, a trial of a new technology. You may have heard of ro- robots, surgical robots, right. to, to use to treat, uh, to treat um, uh, patients. And in that study, we, uh, we were testing whether the surgical robot um, improve the outcomes of surgery for bladder cancer, where the bladder is removed and a new urinary system is created for the patient. It's the curative treatment for locally advanced bladder cancer. The, the, the pilot for that study started in San Antonio. A, a, a significant fraction of those patients came from San Antonio. Dr. Depen Parekh was a, a professor of urology here at that time. He subsequently has moved to the University of Miami. Uh, that trial was completed and reported on that last year. It showed that the robot um, um, had equivalent outcomes as patients who were had their surgeries without the robot. So um, we can identify um, opportunities to make advances, and we can also identify where there um, may be investments that don't um, make advances. So all of these sorts of things are, are making a difference for in the process right now of examining new drugs for bladder cancer. There's a new BCG uh, study that's ongoing. This is a um, an immunotherapy for bladder cancer. Dr. Rob Svatek in San Antonio is leading that study, examining whether a um, just a couple of dollar inoculation of BCG in the skin, which is an immunization used around the world for tuberculosis, will, if you will, uh, supercharge the immune system to help it have a more effective response to BCG for bladder cancer. Huh. These are highly scientific trials based on an extraordinary amount of work um, that are being conducted at institutions around the United States. And um, these are National Cancer Institute clinical trials. And, and Dr. Svatek, right here in San Antonio, is leading that trial. A lot of patients uh, uh, believe, and obviously wrongly, that uh, a robot is much more effective uh, than the human doing the surgery. And uh, we, we, there are some areas where that may be the case, but um, most of the trials that have, again, randomized trials where you're comparing a surgery conducted with a robot compared to surgery being conducted, if you will, in the traditional fashion, understanding that the traditional fashion is constantly improving. Right. Um, most of those studies have been negative that have not shown that there is a significant improvement. The, the challenge with those studies is that... Um, uh, they're quite difficult to do. Um, that that bladder cancer trial um, involved several hundred patients and an extraordinary amount of work and a, and, a, and a major grant from the National Cancer Institute to complete it. They're very expensive to do, and so most of the uh, applications for surgical robot and those kinds of uh, things um, have never been tested to be, you know, be compared with contemporary surgery conducted by skilled surgeons using um, non-robotic techniques. So most of the applications have never been tested to see whether there truly is an advance. Why are those and studies... We always, always have to, we always have to remember that when you're using new technology, there's also expense associated with it. Why are the studies and, more and expensive? They're, they're actually not more expensive. They're just expensive to do. That's so, what I meant. Um, 
the, the investigators and the nurses and the follow-up and the statisticians, and there's a lot of regulatory oversight for those kinds of clinical trials that make them quite expensive to do. Huh. Uh, they're, they're as expensive to do as uh, pharmaceutical trials, which we you've heard a lot of talk about, um, the expense to do, do those trials, and that's why it's so expensive to have pharmaceuticals, because the cost of the studies are incorporated in the cost of the medications, just like that. Um, those those trials with new technologies are also expensive to do. Now, you mentioned that uh, most men who develop prostate cancer have no family history. Uh, the same is also true with breast cancer, despite the belief many people have is that it's all genetic. Well, it's, it's, it's not that there's no genetic association. In breast cancer, there are clear-cut tests that can demonstrate a, um, um, a woman's um, uh, risk more precisely than a man's test today. A problem with, with prostate cancer is it appears to be that there are multiple genes that are involved, all of which may be adding a very small fraction of that risk. So it's much more difficult for us to, to identify a man and say, you in particular have a significantly higher risk of prostate cancer or, more importantly, your risk of dying from prostate cancer. Right. And, and that's really the thing that we're concerned about because um, most of us, as we get older, have some cancer in our prostate. I'm 60. I'm getting ready to turn 65. I've got about a two-thirds risk that I have a, some microscopic cancer in our, my prostate. And by the time we live to our average life expectancy, which is about 78 or 80, two three-quarters of us have some cancer in our prostate, which by comparison, only about 2 or 3% of us will die from it. So it's, it's really a, a question is, what is my risk of having or developing the lethal form of prostate cancer? And that's really the difficult thing for us to identify right now, which makes, which makes it so compelling that we have a, 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 an approach now with finasteride with these 5-alpha reductase inhibitors that may overall reduce our risk of, of being diagnosed and not having to go through the treatments and so forth. Which is why I asked whether prophylactically more men should take the drug. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's a matter of, um, uh, uh, because there are pros and cons. Again, um, for some men, the, the, the risk of sexual dysfunction, although it's low, may be profoundly uh, impactful for them. So now, would, uh, would Viagra override that, that? Oh, it would. It would. It would. Uh-huh. Uh, while, uh, on another hand, we'll just, let's just choose another man who has, who's getting up three times at night because his prostate is enlarged and has a family history of prostate cancer, right. so his risk is higher. And um, that man may benefit not just from the lower risk of prostate cancer diagnosis, but would also benefit in terms of improving his urinary symptoms. So different men will have different mm-hmm. priorities, different backgrounds, and different urinary symptoms or other risks that will, will change their potential benefit from the medication. So having that discussion with your physician, a physician who's well-informed, who can help a person walk through the pros and the cons, um, can, um, can be very, very helpful in deciding whether or not it would be appropriate for an individual. Now, asking for a friend, is it not normal to get up and, and go pee-pee seven or eight times a night? Well, seven or eight times a night is a lot. <clears throat> so I would say no. But getting up once or twice, it's not uncommon. Um, uh, and to different people, the the urinary symptoms associated with prostate enlargement, or it's not always prostate enlargement. Sometimes it's also the age process. Um, so to different people, those symptoms will have a different effect. Some men will tell me, and as I'm sure all clinicians have noted, that I get up twice at night, but I go back to sleep. Other men will walk in and say, I get up two or three times at night, and it just destroys my sleep. What can you do to help me? Oh. So that's also a very individual decision as well. Huh. Well, and also the patients who, who experience the dribbling and and the leaking, they, they, those those are issues that, that that complicate things for patients, and they don't they don't like that. You know, those are the, some of the things that they complain about. Um, but th- I know that the getting up in the evening or getting up during the night is something that in primary care they complain about quite a bit, and that usually stimulates the referral to the urologist uh, for for other therapies if needed. Yes, and you know, just to echo that, um, our primary care colleagues are are oftentimes some of the best educated folks for the for the patients to speak with. 
And there is absolutely no reason why a primary care physician can't have this discussion on the management of, of prostate enlargement or, or the, the opportunities for prostate cancer prevention with finasteride with the patients. Um, I find that our primary care colleagues are oftentimes the, some of the best educated folks with regards to levels of medical evidence to help patients make those decisions. Mm-hmm. And as you look at uh, the kinds of studies that are being done, are you done with this one? The results are in. And now you, Dr. Thompson, move on to the next challenge. Can, can retire? And, uh, we, <laughs> Hi, we have, I didn't say retire. We have, we have, move on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, we have several others that are, that are in the works. And probably the one that I would say stay tuned for is the, um, is the one that we'll examine. And the two groups of men, one got finasteride, one got placebo. We know that the men who got finasteride had fewer prostate cancers, but we also know that they had fewer prostate operations fewer number of patients received radiation, and we will be able to see not just the impact on the disease risk, now that we know that there's, that that we know something about the risk of prostate cancer death, but we'll also know the global impact of the side effects of the treatment, because we cannot ignore the fact that these treatments have side effects and we'll be able to measure that amount. Do we know why African-Americans have a higher incidence of prostate cancer? No, we really don't. Um, um, there have been a whole bunch of reasons that have speculated the reason. So we could, go into, we could spend the entire hour talking about potential reasons, but there's not a clear-cut reason why it is that African-Americans have an increased risk. And as or more important than that, they also have an increased risk of dying from prostate cancer. So um, it's extremely important that uh, African-American men um, talk with their physicians about the opportunities for detection with PSA um, as as well as consideration of treatment if they're diagnosed. Wow. And for the African-American, uh, getting checked is pretty important. It is. And and one, one consideration is that we do know now that we have um, ways to identify an individual man's risk uh, of having prostate cancer based on a number of factors. And so um, a PSA level in a Caucasian man, say a PSA level of four, may indicate a certain risk of prostate cancer. But that same PSA level in an African-American man increases significantly his risk of prostate cancer. Wow. So there are online calculators that enable us to enter PSA, physical exam findings, age, race, ethnicity, family history, and so forth into the calculators to calculate an individual man's risk. And when I sit down and talk to patients about their risk, I always use the, um, the online risk calculator. I specifically use the one from our, our trial. Um, you can Google prostate cancer risk calculator and patients and physicians can find the, the family of calculators that are available. But you can use those to judge a man's risk. But, uh, but it's very, very important to understand that an African-American man's risk of prostate cancer for the same PSA is a lot higher than a Caucasian man. There's quite a bit of education that we, that we you know, give to our African-American men, pa- male patients. It's not only the prostate cancer risk, but also chronic kidney disease and, and other risk factors. So, you know, they, they require quite a bit more education when it comes to, you know, their primary care provider and specialty. But it, it really is important for us as primary care providers to spend time educating our patients, um, especially knowing their risk factors just because of their gender and their race, um, on their on their potential to develop these diseases and, and try to um, convince them, if not just to, to allow us to conduct these tests because many of them can, like you said, can be done via blood. Yes. Let's go back to 1992. Uh, And in 1992 or so, uh, fresh, uh, whenever it was out of medical school, fresh out of training, what led you into urology? (laughs) Uh, I I started in urology in in 1980, but thank you very much for that. Um, Well, you don't look 66 to me. the the, The short side of that was that my father was a urologist. And, well. and so um, working, uh, growing up in a family that um, uh, u- urologists are, are a fun people to be with. It's a specialty in which you treat some of them kindest, sweetest, nicest people on the planet. And it's also a specialty that, that you can make a difference in a person's life, which is extremely rewarding. My friend, Dr. Carl Blonde, is a urologist and loves it. Mm-hmm. 
So it's interesting. You, you, you're you're going to be hard-pressed to find a urologist who doesn't enjoy um, taking care of his patients. It's, my dad was a... a uh, extremely rewarding. My dad was a pharmacist, and he said to me, over my dead body will you become a pharmacist. So I guess it huh. depends on what that profession is in families. Now stick with us. We're going to come right back to you talking with Dr. Ian Thompson, who is the president of Christus Santa Rosa Hospital Medical Center and involved in a very important study on prostate cancer and a medication that seems to be very, very effective. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Cora Juke. You're listening to WellMed Radio on 930 AM, The Answer. Carol Zornio, we talk a lot about caregiving on Caregiver SOS on air, but what is it? Caregiving is caring for a family member, a friend, a loved one, someone who's in your life that needs help with bathing, dressing, buying groceries, medical appointments. If you do any of those things, you're a caregiver. And how can this program help? Caregiver SOS On Air has information from people who have been caregivers, who work with caregivers. It can be book authors, scientists, doctors, the latest information on caregiving right here on KLUP. And one of the things we learn from so many folks is they fail to ask for help when they need it. Well, caregivers do need help. We don't like to ask for help, but we need it. And you'll get tips on how to ask for help and how to have a better life as a family caregiver. Plus, there's a great website you can go to, caregiversos.org. Caregiver SOS on air, Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m., The Answer. Well, thank you so much for listening to WellMed Radio. I want to remind you that immediately after this program on 9.30 a.m., The Answer, at 6 p.m., you can listen to Caregiver SOS on air, everything caregivers and their families need to know about medical care and a whole lot more. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Cora Juke, a nurse practitioner, and we've been spending the hour with Dr. Ian Thompson, president of Christa Santa Rosa Hospital Medical Center and vice president of oncology. And I gather, Dr. Thompson, that uh, Christa Santa Rosa has been very supportive of your research. Oh, very much so. Long tradition. In fact, one of the original sites where the patients and the uh, the participants in the prostate cancer prevention trial was here at Christus in San Antonio. Um, Christus has a long legacy of education and, and research. Um, and um, I've been taking care of my patients at Christus Medical Center for about 15 years. Uh, lovely people. Um, we also have worked with uh, our well-med colleagues in San Antonio over the years, and uh, they've been terrific to work with as well. No better place to practice. Now, what do you do when you're not doing doctor stuff? You, you have a, a hobby or things that keep you busy? I, I have two lovely grandchildren, um, and uh, I practice with my son, who's also a urologist and a urologic oncologist. Love working out, and uh, um, we, we also are a very musical family. So the grandkids and the kids and my wife and I are all musical as well. So you're uh, now looking at third-generation urologists. I don't know. We'll, we'll wait and see. Um, uh, Charlotte and Kate are extremely bright. Um, they're also musical, and we'll see. Um, you never know. Uh, I didn't know when I, when I started as well, and my son certainly didn't know that he was going to be a uro- urologist as well, but uh, um, we're just blessed. Now, where did he go to med school? He went to medical school here in San Antonio and did his training at uh, Vanderbilt, <clears throat> and came back and did his urologic oncology and San Antonio and got his MBA after that. Oh, that's cool. And did you go undergrad at Tulane? No, I went to West Point. Oh, that's neat. My son graduated from the Naval Academy. Oh, congratulations. Sorry about this year's game, though. No, I'm not. (laughs) Uh, Well, I think uh, we beat you a number of years in a row. Uh, We won't go there. Thank you. There is a a tunnel at the military academy, I went back for my 40th reunion, and in that tunnel, there is a, there's a, there are footballs up for every time we beat Navy, and there's a block of years that there are no footballs. Right. Um, and I'll I'll blame that on the naval academy. Now, in the mm-hmm. tunnel, is that where you stored uh, Billy the Goat when you stole him from the academy? No, but I will tell you that my freshman year, uh, uh, a bunch of our cheerleaders at West Point did steal the goat. Right, and we bought as as the core. We bought so this has been in 1972. We bought a quarter page ad in the New York Times 
to say, hey, Navy, do you know where your goat is? Oh, I love that. <laughs> I love that. Now, my son graduated in 1999 uh, from the academy, so that predates him. But mm-hmm. he was on Team Bill, so he spent a lot of time uh, with that goat. Yeah, <laughs> it's, just, it's, just, it's just unfair. The Naval Academy has, we're, 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 it's an unfair disadvantage because it's a lot easier to steal a goat than it is to steal a mule. <laughs> exactly right. I love it. Well, I thank you so much for coming on. And uh, before we let you go for uh, folks who have been listening, uh, is there basic advice that you would give to husbands, wives, significant others when it comes to concern about prostate cancer, uh, which most men never think about? The simple one is, is go talk to your doctor. Um, talk to your primary care doctor. Go talk to your urologist about the, about the pros and cons of testing as well as the opportunity for cancer prevention. Um, and, and we have to remember that because this is primary care is so important that prostate cancer is only a component of health. And so wear your seatbelt, eat your veggies, watch your weight, don't smoke, and talk to your doctor about other preventive strategies. And eat more broccoli. <laughs> and eat more broccoli. You Thank bet. you. Go Navy. It's great talking with you. Okay. You Go take Army, care. beat Navy. Nice to talk with you. Ouch. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Thompson. We appreciate okay. it. Bye-bye. Now, he yeah, squeezed us in. because You too. He squeezed us in because he's about to go on a trip, and we really appreciate him doing that. Mm-hmm. That was fun and interesting. Very interesting. Very informative. Do you find your patients spend time thinking about their prostate? You know, they don't. Um, and and that's, that's sad because there is a lot to consider when, he, when you're thinking about the yeah, prostate. And especially, true. you know, they don't want to consider prostate cancer because they don't want to talk about having the digital rectal exam. Wow. You're right. <laughs> Thank you. I'm Ron Aaron, Cora Juke, who is our nurse practitioner co-host. Well, i at radio on 930 AM, The Answer. You've been enjoying WellMed Radio, an exclusive presentation of WellMed Medical Management. Join us next week for more on your health and well-being. For more information on WellMed or to hear this broadcast again, go to wellmedmedicalgroup.com. We'll see you next week on WellMed Radio.